Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Ida, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And this week, it is wonderful to welcome Professor Nemi Gretz, who has taught English at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev for 35 years. She is the author of several books, including Unlocking the Garden, a feminist Jewish look at the Bible, Midrash and God, The Rabbi's Wife Plays at Murder, and Silence is Deadly, Judaism Confronts Wife Beating, among others. She also writes a blog, which I highly recommend, which can be found at the Times of Israel. And her current areas of interest are teaching Jewish sources about trafficking and workshops, teaching women to study and engage in writing Midrash. And really her writings can be found right across the Jewish world in numerous places. So it is wonderful really to welcome you today to explore this week's parasha together. And I know we wanted to talk about the story of the rape of Dina, which is troubling for all sorts of reasons. The brother's conduct, Jacob's apparent silence. What do you really think that the story is getting at? That's a big question. (laughs) I think what the story is getting at, a few things. First of all, I think it's a story that's being used. It's a story that's being sandwiched between two very interesting incidents when after, if you, if we're talking about Genesis 34, and look really carefully at, at where it's situated. What's happened right before at the very end of the story, you have Jake entering the area of Shechem and then taking the land and he builds a Mizbeach, a, an altar. And that's what, that's the background. And then if you jump afterwards to chapter 35, right after everything that's happened in the story, you have him again building a Mizbeach. So you have sandwiched in here a very interesting story. And the question always is, what is that story doing here? What is it meant to illustrate? And I think one of the things it's meant to illustrate is that there's a problem with intermarriage and and that perhaps from this point on, we're not going to allow our women, the Israelite women, to marry out. And whereas up till now, there's really been, uh, no one's really thought about it one way or another, but now it's made very clearly. This is the message here, I think, the, the message, although it's not that clear. And the other message, I think, which is part of it, is that there's a little bit of overkill here. Uh, to say, to speak mildly, where at the end of the story, the brothers in an honor killing, basically, go, don't only kill the perpetrators, but also kill a whole village. And I think that this is also something which is very problematic here. And as I've written elsewhere, I look upon all of this as a missed opportunity. Uh, And I think that had this whole incident been resolved differently, perhaps we would be a bigger people today and we would have had less conflict. So this is another way of looking at the text. Thank you for that beginning. And I suppose that, as you say, there's perhaps ambiguity in 
the message. But read in light, perhaps, of other texts within the biblical tradition, do you see that Genesis 34 is aware of the kind of anti-marrying out thesis that we encounter elsewhere um, in biblical tradition, for example, chapter 7 in Deuteronomy, and, and of course, the, the kind of nationalistic project of both Ezra and uh, Nehemiah. Okay, there is certainly are a lot of uh, clear indications that marrying out is bad, but there are also counter. In other words, there are other indications. For instance, if you just look at the history, just go back a little bit to, to Judah and Tamar, where you have Tamar's Canaanite descent, and then the lineage there leads into, into, into King David, or even the horrible, where you have incest between Lot's daughters and Lot, uh, and you have Moab, again, we lead from there to King David. And then, of course, there is Ruth, Ruth the Moabite, who herself is clearly a Moabite, and she's referred to that many times in the text, who, again, is welcomed into the community. And even though in her, you know, her very moving speech, your God will be my God and all of that, this is part of the, the tradition. And we read it on, when do we read it? We read it, Dafgan Shavuot. So that in itself is a message. Why, why was a book about a Moabite convert, or we don't even know if she converted. It doesn't say that she converted, right? Unless her words of, she didn't go to the mikvah, that's for sure. But her words perhaps indicate that she's a convert. But why kind of message is being made by that's the reading on, if you think about it, on Dafgan Shavuot, when we get Matan Torah. So that's really a, an interesting message. I think that you have two messages, a contradictory messages, and that's what's so wonderful about our tradition, which is not monolithic, that we have all sorts of voices. And I think it's great that we have the opportunity to hear that particular voice, which is a counter voice to, to Ezra and Nehemiah, and also what's written in Deuteronomy. So I think that I think, it's, again, going back to Dina, I think it's a missed opportunity. There, there was a willingness on the part, even if the beginning was terrible, and there, I'm of the belief that Dina was right, but there are those who, those biblical commentators who argue that the word Ina does not mean right. There are those who would say that. Whether she was or wasn't, but she certainly, something happened there. And then the overreaction of the brothers after the whole community agrees to be converted to be circumcised, right? And then a slap in the face to converts. We've gone, we as adults have been, uh, agreed to circumcision and then you slap us in the face like this and turn us away. It's a horrendous story and something that should not be admired. I wonder if you might also comment on the rabbinic tradition. What kind of, what kind of light do the Midrashim throw on this very problematic. It depends which aspect you're talking about. If you're talking about the rape of Dina itself, they very often she herself is blamed, you know, although she's totally silent and passive, except for one word, right? Except for that, that she went out. Otherwise, she's totally passive. She's totally an object here. 
And but the rabbis managed to blame her. You know, they blame the victim. So in other words, they say it's her fault. She shouldn't have gone out. She she's like her mother, who also went out, like Leah, who went out to greet to seduce Jacob and her own husband to seduce Jacob to sleep with her. And this is in all of this. Is, they blame her for what happened. Very little sympathy in general to 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 what happened to her. And then by putting certain passages together. For instance, at the end of the book of Genesis, you have Jacob's blessings at the end, where he refers to Simon and Levi as being honorable people. So that's, if you want, that's the final word. And of course, the rabbis connect, connect, the, connect the, the two incidents. I actually find it very interesting to make a connection between, and then I'll give you a specific example of a text where the rabbis really, it's in the articles I wrote, where the rabbis are totally against this and feel that they really, by this action, they miss an opportunity. And if you look at a text where, besides a biblical text, or if you look at this, uh, I think, I believe it was the, the Sechel Tov, if I'm not mistaken, in the Sanhedrin, they talk about Abraham not accepting Timnah as a convert. And because they did not accept Timnah as a convert, Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, who was Esau's son. And because they did not accept Timnah as a convert, she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. In other words, basically, we brought Amalek upon ourselves because we rejected her. And so we created our own enemies by rejecting um, other people. And I think there's a lesson to be learned, of course. Today, I don't want to get into politics, but maybe you do, but I don't know if I want to. But this whole idea of rejecting converts and putting so many mikhsholim, so many, I think the word in English right now, cool. obstacles, thank you, and so many obstacles in the way of converts, rather than opening our doors, I think is very problematic. So this is in terms of what some of the rabbinic sources have to say. But I would also add that there's also an intertextual aspect here as well. And there's another horrendous story, similar in the book of Judges. I think it's Judges 18, where you have the community of Lyon, where totally innocent group of people up north um, and the tribe of Don goes up there and basically wipes them out and takes over. And in very similar language to the language of what's in Genesis 34, and if you put these two texts together, and I'm a big believer in intertextuality in the Bible and putting two texts together and seeing what is the message that each one that we could learn. And if you put these two texts together, I think you have an intertextual criticism of what happened in Genesis 34. Why? Because what happens after the book of what happens after chapter um, 18? In the book of Judges, chapter 19, and what's in chapter 19, a horrendous story, which is the concubine of Gibeah, which then leads to civil war. So if you talk about just juxtaposition of texts, I think that there's a message to be that we all should learn from this is that an overreaction, first of all, to killing a whole group of people because of something I'm not saying, I'm not trying to, God forbid, say that rape is good and shouldn't be punished and the rapist should be punished, but certainly not the whole town. And the overreaction to killing off a people who basically wanted to be friends with us. And rabbinic commentary tends to justify, in general, 
justify the action. They look upon on the brothers as saving the Jews, the Israelites. And, and this is the, uh, uh, this to me is a mistake. It's the insul- insularity of a group, as if we're better off to be insular rather than to be open to others. This is how I read the text as commentary for today. And actually, just to dwell on something that you referenced, but Jacob's final message at the end of his life, having been silent during this episode, he comes back and seems to critique, as you say, two of the sons in relation to this. Is that a redeeming feature that you see? Yes, I, I'll just, you have that, the Achim Klei Hamas, that suggests the word Hamas, but anyway, <laughs> uh, so you have your Simon and Levi are a pair. Their weapons are tools of lawlessness. When angry, they slay men. And when pleased, they name oxen. Cursed be their anger so fierce. I will divide them in Jacob, scatter them in Israel. So in other words, the last word definitely is Jacob cursing his son for what they did, not only for what they did, but because they did not control their anger. In other words, their anger was so fierce that that's a palm, a palm. And by the way, the word a palm very often is used in connection with God when he's angry. In other words, they were like gods. They pretended, not pretended, they took the law into their own hands and allowed themselves to just get totally out of control. And the terrible con- consequences was that, first of all, they themselves would be scattered. That's Jacob's curse on them. But also that they ended up, again, killing off people who were potential allies. Obviously, very importantly, you've highlighted how the tradition contains these two strands that we still maybe in many ways straddle today of how outsiders are welcomed in or not, still problematic issue of conversion and so on. I wonder though how we approach or you suggest we approach dealing with these sort of problematic texts overall and what the importance of how we approach these texts and so on. You could almost argue that I have made it my, for the past 25 years or more, actually probably 30 years, began taking this topic very seriously in the mid 80s. So that's more than 30 years, I guess. Uh, You could do the math and figure that out for me. (laughs) It's too much right now uh, for me to figure that one out. But anyway, I really am taking it on my, my life's mission to highlight difficult texts. I think that there's a lot to be learned from them. And my big shock was when I first began writing about Dina. That was the very first text I began to write about, by the way. My very first academic text was about Dina. And I wrote it in the, I don't remember when, it was at some sort of conference that I gave a paper about Dina after I had written a midrash about Dina. And I started looking at what the rabbis had to say about Dina. But what was shocking to me was when I talked to some people about the text of Dina, they said, we don't read this. We don't read this in, in, in school. Because they don't, did not, were not teaching the text of Dina in school. Why? I don't know. Maybe because that had to do with the rape. Maybe because the teachers didn't know how to deal with a text like this. So I think the first thing, my first message is we must read these texts. The same thing goes with the Pilegesh Bagiba. 
when I read this story to people about the concubine of Gibeah, they said, this is in the Bible. We didn't know this was here. And by the way, there are some rabbinic sources that say we should not read, we should not read in public, right? In other words, it, it should not be a haftarah, right? Pilegesh Bagivat should not be a haftarah, along with other texts like Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel, I think it's 23. In other words, there are certain texts that, you know, Pashnish, we, we shouldn't deal with these texts at all. I believe we have to read these texts. I think it's very important for us to read the text. I think today we absolutely must look with open eyes at texts which say we have to destroy all the other people. I think we have to, those are in our, we have to deal with them. Not that we should be destroying all the other people, God forbid, but that we should know that there's, there are in our sources texts that, so we can understand the people around us today who are saying we have to destroy our enemies or we have to create enemies. Let's create enemies. Let's not. I think this is a real, the, the message to me is that we have to look at these texts. We have to discuss these. We have to deal with these texts. And by the way, when I wrote my book about wife beating, which people looked at me and they said, how could you write about a subject like this? All right. And I said, I think we have to look and see what the sources have to say about this, because if we don't know that there are sources which say it's okay to beat your wife, then of course, most of the sources say we should not beat your wife. But we, we have to know that there are some sources that say these things. So I think it's very important for us to know what's in our sources so that we can deal with our sources so that God forbid, no one's going to come from the outside and say, look at you Jews, look at these sources, look how terrible people you are. And then all of a sudden we say, well, we don't have sources like that in our tradition. We have to know that the sources are there. And that also very often our own rabbis who we revere even justify these sources, or if not justifying them, or somewhat apologetic about these sources. So I think this would be the message that I would take. And incidentally, it's the, in 19, uh, just in 1998, my book on wife beating came out. I hope next year, please God, it, it will be the 25th anniversary of the book. And it's, going to, it's in the process of being translated into Hebrew so that Israelis will be able to finally have all the sources. And I hope I don't want it to be a bestseller for the wrong reasons, but I hope that I'll find a publisher for it and that it will be out there for people to read in Israel, in Hebrew, with all of the sources. That's a plug for my book, which isn't out yet. But Of course, no, thank you for sharing and maybe look forward to welcoming you back to, to discuss it. Maybe just finally, of course, you advocate leaning in to bringing up to the surface these problematic texts and engaging with them, discussing them, and, and so on. What's your overarching kind of guidance as to how we might write modern Midrash in light of these kind of texts? I myself have written modern Midrash, and I actually teach, I actually have a class that I teach regularly on Zoom on modern Midrash. So I'm actually bringing highlighting modern midrash in my classes on a regular basis. I teach people are welcome to join. They could send me an email and I'll put them on my list. I teach regularly about modern midrash. I think that modern midrash, which very often is written by women, by the way, uh, although there are men who engage in this. And when I, and there's a wonderful book out, which has just been translated by Tamar Rappaport. It's called Where She Actually Is. And most of them are Orthodox women who are dealing with difficult texts. And 
are seeing the bright side, if you want to look at it. I think we have to, first of all, deal with these texts, trying to find alternative ways of looking at problematic texts and making it clear that these are not our values. In other words, in, in writing, in rewriting the text or reinterpreting to make it clear that this is not something we stand for. Also look for text, earlier texts, which may be overlooked, which makes the point that you want to. In other words, we have to switch our agenda around and somehow or another look for the texts which promote our way of seeing things, whoever R is, right? Everybody is a different R, right? <laughs> That's the problem. But whoever the R texts are, these are, we should be, we have the means. <laughs> it's a tool. <laughs> I don't think that, I don't think that Judaism would have survived without interpretation. And that our texts, they have stayed alive over the years and have remained relevant because of interpretation. And that's why if you go into people's blogs, if you go into every place all over the world, everyone will have something different to say about everything. I, what I've been doing lately is I've been looking at texts which demonize the other. And I've been trying to show that there is another way of looking at people without necessarily demonizing, trying to understand them. Because if we demonize somebody, <clears throat> then we don't, we're closing the door. And if we don't demonize the person, then the door is open for dialogue. And I think that's the big mistake very often is that we close the door to dialogue. And I think one of the beauties of Midrash and, and a rabbinic interpretation, which remember, the Talmud is a dialogue. It's not monolithic. What became monolithic was the Shulchan Aruch, which said you have to do something this way and that way. But the Talmud itself leaves things open. And so I think that this is our tradition and not necessarily the way the tradition is being run today by those in power. It's, a, it's an open book and I would like it, I'd like it to remain open. So thank you so much for opening it further for us and also the various plugs, of course, your blog at the Times of Israel and your Zoom class that people may contact you about. And we look forward to continuing our dialogue and also to welcoming you back as well. So thank you for guiding us through and sharing some hugely important areas that we will take forward with Between the Lines as well. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And do, of course, check out our exciting content on our mothership, jewishquest.org. We do look forward to meeting again next week. Mm -hmm.